I invite you to stand for the reading of Scripture. We're in Luke chapter 22, 47 through 53. Luke 22, verse 47. We're picking up in the Garden of Gethsemane right after our Lord has prayed and exhorted the disciples to pray uh, when Judas entered the garden. So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Luke 22, beginning in verse 47. Hear now the word of God. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's be seated, and I will uh, lead us in a time of prayer. Our God and Father, we come uh, to this very sobering part of your word uh, concerning the sufferings of our Lord. We pray that you would give us uh, hearts that are receptive to the things that are here, that we would uh, find these words to be of the utmost importance for us as disciples of our Lord. Uh, We pray that you would teach us tonight those things which are needful for us, and we pray in the name of Christ, amen. Well, this is perhaps the most notorious of all betrayals in human history. But it's not the only betrayal, of course. This is a long, there's a long history of betrayals. And I want to just tell you about one other betrayal to give you a picture of the kinds of things that Christ and his people are called at times to experience. On May 24th, 1535, The Bible translator and reformer William Tyndale was in Antwerp, and there he was working on his Bible translation, and there was a man that befriended him, a man named Henry Phillips. Henry Phillips had spent months getting to know Tyndale and spending time with him and uh, probably acting in such a way that encouraged Tyndale and gave a sense of friendship and camaraderie. But that day, May 24th, 1535, Henry Phillips intentionally led William Tyndale down a narrow alleyway where he had already told the authorities what was going to happen so that Tyndale would make it a ways down that alleyway and then would be captured and imprisoned and then eventually executed. Henry Phillips was an Englishman who uh, was in much need of money. He was interested in uh, money. He needed it. He had no real love for the Lord and no real interest in Tyndale as a person. He was quite willing to take payment to find Tyndale, uh, to befriend him, and then to betray him. That was his entire purpose. It's a very sad story as we think about the realities of human sin and the, 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 the depths of the depravity of human sin that leads people to act in such ways to value money over human lives. And one of the 
the hard and evil things about betrayal and treachery is the deceptive component of it. That here was a man who had befriended Tyndale as a friend. He, Tyndale even would tell, uh, had told his friend Thomas Points, he said, I know Henry Phillips to be an honest man. This is what he testified of Henry Phillips. Handsomely learned and very conformable. He had good opinions of Henry Phillips. All the while, Henry Phillips had planned to betray him. That was his very purpose. Despite Tyndale's trust in Phillips and the love that he had showed to Phillips, nevertheless, Henry Phillips had more interest in money than in Tyndale and no interest in the Lord, it seems. And I mention the story to point out the fact that what our Lord Jesus experienced in the garden, of course, was the worst of all betrayals because he is the sinless son of God. But there are many uh, experiences of betrayal. Even the Bible records many of them. I was just trying to think through again the, the various examples in Scripture that God's people have gone through. Uh, you might think back to Joseph, uh, Joseph's brothers betraying him <clears throat> uh, to those uh, slave traders as, he went, as they went down to Egypt. Out of malice and out of envy, they sold their brother into slavery. They betrayed his trust. They lied to their father. There's Samson, who was betrayed by Delilah. And of course, this example, you might be thinking, well, he had it coming. And there's some truth to that. He did have it coming. Uh, You spend time with a woman like Delilah, and you you should not expect uh, honesty and fidelity. Uh, But that's indeed what happened. He was betrayed into the hands of the Philistines. This King David uh, will come to mind as well, betrayed by his own son, Absalom. And then by one of his closest advisors, Ahithophel, uh, perhaps who is mentioned maybe even in Psalm 55. We don't know for sure, but that could be what David was writing about. And we might say about David, David, you're reaping what you sowed. You betrayed Uriah. And now you're betrayed. Indeed, there's truth to that. Tamar, who kindly came to serve her half-brother Amnon, was betrayed in a vulnerable situation by her brother Amnon, who had no real love for his half-sister, only wanted to use her. Uh, There's also, as we go to the New Testament, the story, uh, the, the narrative of the Apostle Paul. We don't know a lot about this particular betrayal, but we do know that uh, the Apostle Paul had a friend named Demas. Demas had ministered with Paul to some degree and was in companionship with him. In Colossians 4, verse 14, uh, in his closing remarks of Colossians, he says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Demas was with them, with Luke, the, the author of this gospel, and with Paul. But then sometime later in his final, perhaps his final letter written in Second Timothy, he says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. How heartbreaking that would have been for him to see Demas forsaking him. Whether or not Demas had betrayed him in the sense of giving him over to the authorities, we don't know any of that, but it was betrayal in the sense of the friendship and the walking together when the Lord was no more. Uh, Demas had left in love with the things of this present life, just like Judas. Time and time again, the people of God have experienced treachery and betrayal uh, through the deceptive and malicious acts of others. And yet in all of these other examples that I have given you, This example, as we come to the gospel tonight, is absolutely unique. 
Because when, it, when any of us experience betrayal or treachery, we know that to some degree or another, at some time or another, we ourselves have been untrue, unfaithful to some degree towards others because we are sinners. But when it comes to the Lord Jesus, he is holy, harmless, and undefiled. Our Lord Jesus never betrayed anyone. He was never unfaithful to anyone. He loved with a perfect love. He loved his disciples. John 13 says, he loved them to the end. He never spoke any measure of deceit. The scriptures say there was no deceit in his mouth. His love was sincere and complete. It was not intermixed with any kind of self-love at all. It was unalloyed. No imperfections whatsoever. And so when we look at the betrayal of Judas, uh, the betrayal of uh, Christ to the authorities, we see that this is the most wicked and reprehensible act recorded for us in Scripture. To, to betray the sinless Son of God who had loved Judas, who had shown love to Judas. And so as we come to this uh, this narrative this evening, I want to look at Three things in particular. We have a few topics that we can address. The, the primary one is this matter of betrayal uh, in the case of Judas. We'll look at that. Uh, the second topic is I do want to briefly consider the disciples' response when they offer to fight for Jesus. They, they pull the sword and they say, Lord, shall we fight? Uh, interestingly, they even do it but as they're asking. There's an ear getting cut off. They don't wait for a response. Um, third, and then finally, I want to look at the, the phrase in verse 53, where Jesus says, this is the hour and the power of darkness. I want to think about what that means in the terms of the timing of this whole providential event that was taking place. But let's begin with the betrayal now and look, in this, look at this in more detail. <clears throat> we know that our Lord had been uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane that night with his 11 disciples. And while the disciples were sleeping, Jesus had poured out his soul to the Father. He was in deep agony. He had asked that if somehow this cup could pass from him, that it would be so. But he submitted himself to the will of his Father. And despite the extreme anguish that he experienced, despite the sweating great drops of blood, he still said, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will, that will I do. And so Jesus, he has prayed for this spiritual battle. He has been prepared for the moment that was going to come. He was ready when Judas and the band of soldiers came in to face what was coming, to face what God the Father had determined, and to be led away to his trial and eventually his, his cruel and his painful death upon the cross. His disciples were not ready. They had not heeded the warnings, and they did not do very well uh, in this test, as we will see. Let's look at verse 47. While he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Back a few sermons ago in Luke, we considered the moment when Judas had agreed to betray Christ, uh, Pastor Kevin was preaching on that particular passage. And, and we know that back in Luke 22, verse 3, it says that Satan entered Judas. Now we know that Judas acted willingly and in accord with his covetous nature 
and in accord with his lack of love for Christ. But Satan took advantage of that. Satan took that foothold, that opportunity to wedge himself into the door and to enter Judas and to drive Judas to do the most evil, sinful act committed in human history. And as we think about Judas, I want you to understand what this man had seen, what this man had experienced in his time with the Lord Jesus Christ. Judas had seen and heard it all as one of the twelve disciples. He had seen blind men regain their sight. He had witnessed dead people coming to life again. He had held in his own hands the fragments of the bread left over from the feeding of the 5,000. All the disciples, that carried these baskets out after the feeding of the 5,000. They saw the bread that Jesus Christ had created. Judas had heard Jesus' teaching and preaching, uh, had heard what uh, Jesus had instructed them over many years. He was there for the personal conversations, the private conversations as well, the explanation of the parables. And not only had Judas seen and heard all of these things, but he had personally experienced the, the tender compassion and love of Christ. Now, even though Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, I, I believe that Jesus acted and spoke in love to Judas, just as he did to everybody else. He had shown love and concern. He had, Jesus had instructed, he had warned, he had encouraged them for many years. Jesus was a true friend to Judas. And Judas, to some degree, at least externally, had acted as a companion of Jesus. Remember that the rest of the disciples didn't know who the betrayer was when the time of the Last Supper was being taken. They were like, who, who is it? They, even when he was speaking to Judas, they said, oh, Judas, just, he must just be going out to go do something. They did not see this yet. So it was not obvious. It wasn't like the disciples said, that Judas sure been talking mean about Jesus for the last three months. Not a surprise at all. That what, that's not what was happening. It appeared as if Judas seemed to like Christ and didn't seem to have any bones to pick that he would have done such a thing. It was not obvious. And Psalm 41 verse 9 uh, speaks about this betrayal. Uh, this particular passage Jesus actually quotes as saying, this is fulfilled in the one who betrayed me. So it's very explicit. It says in Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Uh, it was fitting to quote this passage at the Last Supper because they were, they were all partaking of the bread together and Judas was about to lift his heel against Christ and betray him. And despite all that Jesus had done for him, despite all that Judas had seen and heard, Judas was willing to betray the sinless Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. We don't exactly know how much those particular pieces of silver weighed, but if we were to say they were an ounce, that would be the equivalent of about 600 to 700 U.S. dollars. To betray the sinless Son of God for that value. Of course, it was probably, maybe it was less back then, I don't know. And what I want you to think about is what a commentary this is upon the evils of the human heart. How twisted sin is, that sin could so twist and so pervert a person that they value 30 pieces of silver over the sinless Son of God. This is what sin 
does to us. It, it twists us. It clouds our judgments. It makes us love things of so little value rather than loving he who is of infinite value. And though this particular crime is unique in all of history, the same thing happens to other people. They part with Christ for 30 pieces of silver, or I don't even care if it's a a million pieces of silver. It's still worth nothing compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. They part with Christ for some idol that they value above Jesus because sin has twisted them. It has distorted their judgment. They cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. People lust after 30 pieces of silver. They lust after some fleeting experience that they think will find them satisfaction. And that's what Judas did. He, he didn't really love Christ. He didn't care about Christ. And apparently 30 pieces of silver was enough to get the job done. You would have thought maybe they would offer him more than that. That's not very much. One of the evils of betrayal and treachery is how it involves insincerity and deception. It's one of the reasons that it's so hurtful and harmful is because of the insincerity and the deception. Someone that can use common expressions of love and kindness and friendship all the while in those actions they are plotting deceitfully to harm you and to hurt you for their own selfish interests. And this kind of insincerity and deception is unloving behavior. Of course, we know what love is defined as in the scriptures. Love seeks the good of its neighbor, not your own interests. Love rejoices in the truth, not in deception. Love does not seek its own. Love is the very antithesis of such treacherous behavior as Judas did here. And that is why it is so evil that Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus with a kiss. Jesus asks him that. Would you do that? He says, would you betray Me with a kiss? It was to pierce his conscience, to say you would use the symbol of affection to hand me over to to judgment and to death. That's what you would do? Uh, The very word kiss in in the Greek, philemati, it's the same same word group as phileo, to love, right? It's one of the words in the Greek New Testament, to describe one who loves. And a kiss was an expression of love and affection, a very common expression between friends at that time. And it still is a sign of affection. And this may remind us of the moment in the Old Testament. You remember when Joab, the servant of David, he grabbed Amasa, he pulled him in to kiss him, and then he put a dagger in his stomach. The same kind of thing, though Judas does not have a physical dagger. He's he's doing the very same thing. He's stabbing Jesus, betraying him. Now, what do we learn from this moment in our Lord's ministry? Well, first of all, we, we need to come to grips with the evil of the human heart when it is given to the exaltation of sin and self. When, like Judas, anyone gives way to covetousness. It can lead them to betray the Christ whom they profess. And we're warned, of course, in Scripture that we we need to be watching out lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will lie to us. It lied to Judas when he thought this was going to be worthwhile. He later regretted it. I don't think it was actual godly repentance that Judas acted out of, but he did regret it. I think he saw, was this worth it? 
All of this for 30 pieces of silver? And so sin deceives. And so we need to take this into account. We need to see in Judas a a picture of the evils of sin and its deceitfulness so that we will be on guard against it in the way in which it came upon Judas. Now a second thing I think we can learn from our Lord's betrayal is that our Lord Jesus indeed went through all the things that we go through. Our Lord, he knew the pain of betrayal. He knew, he knows what it's like. Hebrews 4, verse 15 through 16, we're told this about our our great high priest. It says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus, he really did go through everything that we go through. He experienced the whole range of human suffering. He experienced the whole range of temptation. He did it all without ever sinning against his Father in heaven. And so he is indeed the perfect high priest for us to look to. He, he is the, the perfect one to bring our sorrows, our pains, and our temptations to in prayer and to ask him to help us when we find ourselves in such weakness. And for people that have gone through different forms of betrayal, different depths of betrayal, Uh, they might say to you, you don't know what it's like. You don't know how hard it is unless you've gone through something like that. And sometimes we have to honestly say, you're right, I, I I can't quite relate to what you're describing. All of us at some level experience betrayal in the sense that somebody lets us down, at the very least. People are unfaithful, people let us down. Uh, But there's others that experience profound uh, depths of sorrow from betrayal. And and some of us will have to say, I don't quite know what you're experiencing. I don't quite know how hard it is. But what I can tell you is that Jesus does know how hard it is. Jesus does understand what you're going through. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your temptations. He knows what it's like to be in such a situation and all the temptations that would then come. And so Isaiah 53, it tells us that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. What grief he would have experienced when Judas turned against him, loving something so baseless and useless as 30 pieces of silver. Judas exchanging his soul for money. What grief that would have brought Jesus to see such apostasy, to see such betrayal and treachery. And now, brothers and sisters, if we are Jesus' servants, are are we above our master to think that we won't experience similar kinds of things? Uh, We're not above our master. We're going to experience similar kinds of of suffering in this life, and, and it will be difficult. And if that is what God wills for us, if we are to experience this kind of suffering, then let us keep our eyes firmly fixed upon the Lord Jesus, who has already endured the sorrow for us. And even through it all, he did not fail his disciples. He did not fail to love them. He did not fail to obey the commandments of his Father. And of course, that is our calling as well when we experience such things. We are to keep our eyes fixed upon the Lord. We are to love him. We are to love those around us. We are to love even those who would betray us, rather than giving way to hatred and to bitterness. 
And so this is a, a profoundly important picture for us of the love of Christ and uh, the, the way in which he handled this, this grief and sorrow. Indeed, it was a very real grief and sorrow. Uh, but he has gone before us faithfully as a forerunner uh, that not only gives us the example, but then gives us grace sufficient to bear with such sufferings ourselves. So next I'd like to cover another topic here, the matter of the, the disciples and their, their offer to Jesus to fight back uh, when the, uh, the band of soldiers came into the garden. Verse 49. <clears throat> when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And so this is interesting because the the disciples, they had neglected to watch and pray. So they're they're sleeping this whole time that they weren't supposed to be sleeping. And then suddenly a band of soldiers come in and like, all right, we're ready. They get up, they grab the swords and say, okay, let's fight. We're ready. You're not ready. You didn't prepare. You, You were not prepared for this moment. You neglected the opportunity. Jesus gave you instructions. He didn't post you with a sword at the garden, uh, at the edges of the garden. He said, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And as I look at this account, I think, how like us isn't, is this? Uh, in terms of the common ways in which we can be responding to difficult situations. Uh, we know that <clears throat> from John's gospel that Peter was the first to strike and that he struck the right ear of the servant Malchus, one of the servants of the uh, the high priest servants. And this is Peter, of course. It makes sense that Peter's the first to strike. He had said, I am ready to go to prison and to death. That's what he had said here in our chapter. And what we find, I think, with the disciples at this moment is that they are more willing to fight than to suffer with Christ. It's true, there are times in the Christian life where physical self-defense may be warranted and and the righteous thing to do. There's times of of just war where that's the right thing to do, where bravery can be expressed in such situations and faith can be expressed in that way. Even Hebrews 11 says, by faith they fought and subdued and did battle. So we, we know that that's the case. But here, the call from a standpoint of God's precept would have been for them to suffer with their Lord. And they they didn't want to do that. They wanted to fight. J.C. Ryle, he comments on this in his expository thoughts on the Gospels. He says, we're far more willing to be crusaders than martyrs. He says, to suffer patiently for Christ is far more difficult than to work actively. To sit still and to endure calmly is far more hard than to stir about and take part in the battle. Crusaders will always be found more numerous than martyrs. Work for Christ may be done from many spurious motives, from excitement, from emulation, from party spirit, or from love of praise. Suffering for Christ will seldom be endured from but, but from one motive. That motive is the grace of God. So he says, people can get excited about fighting and working and striving and debating. Some people love to fight. And there are times where there's a righteous kind of battle that we engage. We know that. In fact, Jesus had called them to that when he said, watch and pray. There was another battle that they were not paying attention to. 
But at this point, they were called to suffer with their Lord. That if they had been faithful, they would have stayed with him. They would have confessed his name before men. They would not have denied him, as Peter does later in this this passage. This was not the time to fight with swords. This was the time in which the father had appointed suffering for his son. And so the call for us as well, brothers and sisters, so often is that we need to endure patiently the suffering that we are called to in the Christian life. And there will be a righteous kind of fighting. There will be a a proper spiritual battle that we engage in such suffering. But there is a patient, calm endurance that we are called to. Peter, who learned these lessons through his own failure, And eventual restoration later wrote in his first letter much about suffering. Peter uh, had learned how to suffer for Christ. And in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14, he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. We're told in the scriptures that we are called to partake of the sufferings of Christ. That part of being united to Jesus, we think of all the benefits and the blessings that come from union with Christ. One of the things that you get united to is to suffer with him. If we were making the list, I'm not sure if we would include that or not, but that's obviously what we should do. We should think of this as a vital part of following him. The disciples uh, thought that they had made some physical preparations. You remember that they pointed out earlier in the chapter, they said, Lord, here are two swords. They thought they were ready, that that's what they needed, but they needed something much more. And we need something much more than two swords when it comes to suffering with Christ in the difficult situations that we will face. We need to be well prepared for suffering. We need to not be surprised, Peter says, when it comes. How do we prepare? Well, by a life of watchfulness and prayer, obviously, is what we were told by our Lord. We will be well prepared when we are growing in love for our Savior, because then when the time comes that we might be reproached for his name, we love him so much that we're ready to go. We're ready to stand for him. We will endure various kinds of suffering for the name of Christ. And particularly when we say for the name of Christ, we mean we will suffer for our commitments to Jesus and our willingness to be associated with him before a watching world. Uh, That suffering and persecution and pushback takes all different kinds of forms. Sometimes family relationships are severed because of Christian convictions, just as Jesus predicted. He's going to divide with the sword, and, and that's going to happen. Families at times will be rent apart because of Christian convictions that you must walk in to follow Christ. And the question at that point is, will you stand for the truth, or will you compromise for the sake of peace, earthly peace? That suffering may come by external persecutions from a world hostile to Christ and you will face slander and misrepresentation and mockery and perhaps even physical violence, as many do in parts of the world. And the question is, are you ready to 
be named with Jesus, to suffer for his name. The disciples weren't ready here, but eventually they would be. In fact, in Acts it says they they, uh, left after being flogged, saying, excited, joyful, that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And this is the path to glory. Romans 8, verse 16 through 17 says that if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So this is our call, brothers and sisters. We find a lesson, I think, in the disciples' response at this moment that they were ready to fight, but they were not ready to suffer. Are we ready to suffer for the name? Are we ready to stand for the truth and to patiently endure whatever will come our way? Luke gives us this unique detail also of the healing of the the servant's ears. Even, Even here we see the love of Christ displayed for us in the midst of his own betrayal. Verse 51. Jesus answered and said, Permit even this, and he touched his ear and healed him. You you see the love of Christ, that he can still care and show compassion and bring healing to somebody in a situation where he is being betrayed. What love for one's enemies on display? Well, the final matter I want to briefly address is this statements in verses 52 through 53. This is said before Jesus is led away to his arrest and uh, to his trial. It says, Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus points out to them, he says, You had so many opportunities to arrest me, you could have done it at any point. Just come on into the temple, broad daylight, and arrested me not as if Jesus had like a cadre of bodyguards around him, right? With all these swords and these big men that would protect him from getting arrested. No, that's not how he did his ministry. That wasn't his focus. He says, you could have arrested me, but you've waited for the time of darkness, the time of secrecy to do so. When it says, this is your hour in the power of darkness, I think what is most in view is the fact that Satan, the one of evil, the one of darkness, is orchestrating all of these things. And Jesus knows it, that providentially Satan is being permitted to do these things. He has, God has a purpose in superintending all of this. But in addition to that, it reminds us that evil thrives in darkness and in secrecy. That's what people do. If they're going to do something like this, they want secrecy. If they're going to uh, hatch their evil plans and then bring it to fulfillment, they need darkness, they need cover, they need the opportunity to deceive and, and hide from others. And that's why we as followers of Christ are called to live and to walk in the light. It's one of the ways that we defeat evil in our own lives and in the lives of others is to speak and to act in the light according to truth. But he also says that this is an hour. This is your hour. And Jesus often spoke about his hour not yet coming, but now the hour had come. The hour of his death that was soon to come was upon him. And I think it's instructive that Jesus says this is your hour because it reminds us that the power of evil is so limited by our sovereign God It can only go as far as he so allows it to do, according to his will. It's but an hour. 
They got to do their evil. Judas got to do his evil act. Satan got to do his evil act. All the chief priests got their opportunity to, to have him executed and to shout crucify him. The Romans had, had their time of, of evil. But it all came to an end because Jesus was defeating evil and sin and death in the cross. It was not a very fruitful hour for evil. God the Father had a plan in all of this. As Acts 2 verse 23 says that he was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, taken by lawless hands, crucified and put to death. Yes, it was evil. These, all these, these acts were evil. All these men were accountable for what they did. But God had so purposed that that hour of evil would be a means by which the salvation of the world would be accomplished. Now, if God can do that, if he can take the most incomprehensible evil act uh, ever committed, the one that we think is just impossible to describe how evil it is, and he can turn that to good for good purposes, what do you think he can do with all the other things that happen in, in this life? How important this is for us to see that our, our, the evils that we experience, the afflictions that we go through, are but for an hour, and they are still going to be turned to good by our sovereign and good God. We don't know how he does this, except that we can see it on display in this amazing example of the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we end this evening, I, I want to remind us that we are in a very solemn portion of Luke's gospel. We are face to face with the sorrows and the sufferings of our Redeemer. And as Pastor Kevin uh, preached last week, it's important that we approach these passages with a sense of sobriety and gravity. We, we come face to face with some of the most consequential realities of all. We, we come face to face with the awesome wrath and justice of God as we think about the sufferings of our Redeemer. We, we're seeing the cup of his wrath poured out in the crucifixion, and we're seeing the sufferings of Christ under that in these chapters. We come face to face with some of the most heinous evil acts ever committed, as we mentioned just a moment ago. We see the power of Satan at work, but we also see Satan being defeated at the cross and in the resurrection. We see the Lord Jesus, the man of sorrows, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, dying and rising again on the third day. And, and what I want us to just remember is that these are the most important things that we can give our attention to. So to be here in Luke 22 and 23 and 24 is so important for us because these are the things of the utmost eternal importance. And so let us pray that God would indeed teach us uh, the things that are needful here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we give thanks uh, for this inspired record of the sufferings of our Redeemer. Uh, we ask that you would uh, teach us and grow us so that we would be ready, uh, prepared to follow our Lord Jesus Christ and all that he calls us to do in this life, ready to suffer, uh, ready to face difficulty, and to do so with love in our hearts, just as Jesus had. Uh, we thank you for your love and compassion to us sinners in our weakness. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.